Matthew 13, uh, 53 to 58 is the text this morning. And uh, this text comes off of Jesus completing a series of parable-like sermons. And uh, so Jesus is starting to change his place of location. He moves and leaves uh, where he was at the Sea of Galilee and moves back to his hometown in Nazareth. And we'll see some response to Jesus here. Verse 53 says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many works there because of their unbelief. Now, do you know someone who is stubborn? Don't point. In general, contrary to popular belief, is not necessarily a bad characteristic within a person. Uh, for most people, it means you've just maybe not had enough information to persuade you to change your mind. Stubbornness, as a, a character trait, is a resistance to change, especially when others inflict change upon them. Uh, we don't always like people to come and reconstruct our lives. The Gadsden flag, as you see on the wall there, is an iconic symbol of that strong resistance to change that when push comes to shove, we'll forcefully resist. That's the 1776 mantra. Well, like any good character, tra character trait, there is also, can be, a dark side. Scripture is very clear that the human heart is desperately wicked, and it's hard for us to discern our true nature on our own. And Jeremiah boldly claimed it's really impossible, and this leads us to really consider that there may be a sinful occurrence of obstinacy. James, also reflecting a similar view as Jeremiah, said that the heart is often like an unreliable water fountain. Sometimes there's sweet that comes out of that fountain, and sometimes there's this bitterness or sourness. Now, if courage looks like loyal, or, or if, if stubbornness looks like loyalty, then that's a sweet virtue, I would say. But if it's prideful obstinacy, then it's actually a sour vice. They don't hold the same effect. And when the word of God is taught, we ought to examine how we are receiving the word that we're hearing. How do we avoid becoming obstinate to truth that's presented to us? How do we properly assess our own motives and why is it that we resist truth? Now, in the next five episodes that we are coming to, Jesus, or Matthew rather, is presenting 
five different responses to Jesus. These responses, in many ways, illustrate what we saw in the parable of the soils. In the parable of the soils, we remember that there was different reactions to Jesus. There was a hard soil. There was a uh, rocky soil. There was a thorny soil. But there was also yet a good soil. And in the next five sections, you're going to see examples of these in real life in which people are responding to Jesus because their hearts are set in a particular direction. Now, the first two responses to Jesus reveal to us hardness. Hardness for two different reasons. Uh, we're just looking at the first this morning, in which Jesus goes to his hometown, and there's an obstinacy, a hardness to Jesus. When we get into chapter 14, we're going to see an obstinacy, a political obstinacy by Herod, and they are obstinate and hard for two different reasons. So this morning we're looking here, we have a great opportunity to slow the screen down, like slow the pace of the story down so that we can look and see how a heart hardens. Now hardness is not only a non-Christian problem, it is also periodically a problem for Christians. Christians can become obstinate too. And we have to reflect, are we being obstinate because we simply don't have enough information? Or is it because when we've looked at the truth, we don't like what we see? And there's a clear difference between the two. And God, if he is truly your heavenly father, won't let you be hard-hearted indefinitely. When trials come, they will come to soften the soil of your heart so that you will respond to the truths that he wants you to have. But I have to ask you, how much better would it be if we'd simply humble ourselves and when we see the truth, we would respond wholeheartedly to it? God doesn't want us to be hard and non-flourishing. He wants us to be blessed. And so as we look at these largely, this largely negative example, I want you also to consider how much better could it be if I wouldn't harden my heart when truth is presented before me. Now let's look and observe. I believe there's kind of like a five progressive steps here. And so follow along with me in uh, the first step, I believe, is how there is a defined truth. There is truth that is observed very clearly because that's the, the point at which you have to make a decision. Now, I have to go back a little bit into the storyline so you can see how we got to this, this situation where Jesus is at his hometown. But as Matthew presents these sequence of events, earlier that day, Jesus had had been in a house. He had been in a house where he had cast out a demon. A demon-possessed man was brought to him, and Jesus exercised that demon out of him. And if you go back to chapter 12, chapter 12, you see the, the circumstances in which verse 22 and verse 23 of chapter 12, you see a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he, that is Jesus, healed him. 
so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. The establishment came up with a completely irrational reason not to embrace the truth. The truth was very clear. It was very visible. But they came up with, they came up with a very irrational response. And after Jesus responds to this irrational, irrationality, he, he gives this dis defense of his divinity. And then after his defense, Jesus' family shows up. And if you look at uh, verse 50, you have to go down to the end of the chapter. You have Jesus, Jesus' uh, brothers and mother coming to, to see him. And Jesus says, so you see in verse 46, And while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. And he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What is Jesus getting at? He is saying that belonging to a biological family is like being inside. And he is saying... That, nevertheless, may not be an indicator whether or not you are inside God's family. The Jewish establishment saw themselves as if they were like fathers of the nation. Fathers to children. But they were demonstrating that they were not spiritual fathers. They were, in fact, far from the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because... They saw the truth about Jesus in black and white. And instead of loving Jesus, who is God's son, they hated him. They hated him. How can you hate a family member? You proclaim to say that you are a part of the family, the commonwealth of God, and you are acting like fathers for the nation, yet you hate the very son of your heavenly father? And Jesus goes outside the house. So there's, this, there's, there's these images starting to develop here where Jesus is inside a house. He exercises a demon out of this man. And his, his family members show up outside of the house. And Jesus says... They're outside, not just of this house, they're outside of my father's house. And now Jesus goes outside of this house, and he gets into a boat, and he preaches to a group of people who are hearing him at the seaside. And what is he talking about? He's talking about the need of spiritual conversion, of being born into the father's house. You can't just simply claim that you are. You have to be born again. And how does one enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, they take hold of Jesus, who is the treasure, and they don't let him go. 
These are the ones who have ears to hear. These are the ones who receive Jesus without any reservation. They want everything that Jesus has. Now we look at verse 53. Look at 53 of the chapter that we're in, chapter 13. So Jesus has just preached through these parables. And in verse 53, after Jesus taught, he got out of the boat and he rejoins his biological family and he goes to his hometown. And in his hometown, he teaches in their synagogue. And what does it say in verse 54? Their response is, they were astonished. They were astonished. They were literally excited. They were impressed. They can't believe their eyes. They can't believe their ears. And then they start asking a whole slew of questions to reconcile what they're experiencing with the facts that they know. They, this is the boy we saw. He was a carpenter here for 30 years. This doesn't make sense. We're seeing him do things that no other person can do. And they had these facts and they knew these facts and sinful obstinacy starts to take place and I want to make this point. It doesn't happen without the observation of truth. I want it to be very clear here that obstinacy can occur and should occur when there are not enough facts that present themselves. We should not just be steamrolled over. We should be tenacious for the truth. And holding... Holding on for clarity's sake is not sinful at all. But it is a different story when the truth is observed. If truth has been declared and a way of obedience to Christ is presented and it's clear and there's still not a desire to follow, then we're moving into this pattern of sinful obstinacy. And so in verse 54, the last half, we see the second step. We see, yes, the truth has been observed, but now there is an alternative that is desired. An alternative is desired. Verse 54, in the last half, they start asking these questions. And where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Again, they, they, the facts they know tell a different story a story that they would prefer. And as we follow the line of questioning, we see the truth getting buried. It gets buried. They're initially struck by just, wow, this is amazing. This is a, a tremendous teacher. And they should have perceived that this was the hand of God. Yet they deliberately overlook that truth and they pursue alternative, alternative options. And it's not mere ignorance here. And I want to be very clear. This is not ignorance. But it's of their own free will. They're searching after grounds of offense. They want to prevent the possibility of coming to the conclusion. The path that God would have them to go on. And they don't look up to heaven and say, yes, these are amazing works. No one else could have done these. They, look up, they don't look up to heaven. They, instead, they look down on the horizon 
and it prevents them. And they ask, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother Mary? Are not this bro- are our brothers James and Joseph and Simeon, Simon and Judas and his sisters here all with us? Then where does this man get all these things? Now it's after further reflection, these positive impressions that they had of Jesus start to disappear. And the miraculous ought to have drawn them to, to the truth. And I think it's important for us to understand that we can do the same thing. If you've ever thought, how is it possible that they, they can't see? How is it that they don't believe? We do the same thing. Our hearts can harden when we hear a sermon and say, eh, I would prefer to do this. Maybe we read the Bible and the, the conclusion that we're reading is so obvious, but we choose to go in a different way. Or perhaps receiving counsel from a pastor or even a spouse, and when we follow our heart, we pursue alternative ways. And it's in that vulnerable moment that we can become hardened and we become offended by the truth. And so in verse 57, in the first part, we see that offense was taken. Offense was taken. Now, we might not be used to thinking in terms of like denial of truth and offense, but they go hand in hand. In verse 57, we read this. In verse 57, and they took offense at him. They took offense at him. That's a very short statement. It's, it's kind of like the, the pivotal, pivotal like moment in this, this story that we're supposed to take hold of and realize that this is going to carry over again into another category. But they didn't believe in Jesus, and they took in offense at him. And I think that, I think our problem as a church, I'm not, I'm not saying just, our local congregation. But the church at large, the church at large has a very weak view of humanity. We believe that we need a savior, but we do not always believe how desperately we need a savior. Paul says this, that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned, or they're spiritually taught. The natural man is a way that Paul talks about the unconverted man and woman. A natural person instinctively views themselves as the credible source of truth. We have an unnaturally flattering eye of our own selves. And so often, you've heard it perhaps, if you've shared that you have become a believer in Christ, maybe you've heard it from others, in which they say something along these lines, I'm doing just fine. I'm glad that's working for you. But I'm good. And when you push back just a little bit more and you tell them that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, 
they might say, okay, I agree with that. I mean, and then what they're doing is they're being honest, but they're blinded to the fact that they themselves are in a very vulnerable place and they need to be converted. They need to be born again. And as soon as you say that you need to repent and believe the gospel, because Jesus is the only way, he is the one who bore the punishment that you deserve, and he's calling you to respond to him. And as soon as you say that to them, they start to look for alternative truths, alternative facts. But truth is staring them in the eyes, and they look away. And then they become offended by the truth. They took offense, it says here. And that word offense is an interesting Greek word that maybe you've heard it in English. It's the word scandal or scandalon, in which uh, something gets, somebody gets tripped up in a scandal. And uh, sometimes we have a vision of a stumbling block. Sometimes the translation will say they, it's a stumbling block. They took offense at him, and he was like a stumbling block. Like maybe you're walking down Main Street. Have you noticed in Main Street they have these little red, orange marks on the sidewalk now for the catch the raised stones? Uh, I used to walk. I, I always lift my feet, but maybe not as high as I think, and I catch myself on some of those stones. That's a stumbling block of sorts. But what Jesus is talking about here in the, the language of that time is really referring to like a trigger on a trap and a mechanism in which the trap closes on an unsuspecting victim. And in some contexts, that word is used to describe someone who is becoming bitterly against another person. To be like they're stung in their heart because they're refusing to respond to the truth. They're actually hurting themselves and they're starting to become angered inside. And it's such a sad commentary on people that when we have been given a reasonable explanation, yet they desire an alternative way so badly that they become embittered against the truth and they hate the truth and they don't want to hear the truth and they can't even look at you anymore. That's not the pathway to human flourishing, folks. The truth is the way to flourishing. And Jesus said to John the Baptist, when he was in prison, John the Baptist, he was a believer in the Messiah, but he was struggling. He, 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 he was in prison. He, this isn't the way it was supposed to go. I mean, I start preaching, the Messiah shows up, and then the kingdom is here, and the Romans go away, and justice, sweet justice, fills the land. He wanted deliverance. That's, that's, there's, nothing there's no problem with that. And Jesus sent back a message to John the Baptist and said, you're looking for an alternative Messiah. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He was looking for an alternative when his circumstances became hard. He didn't want to go in this direction. He wanted which isn't a wrong want. He wanted a liberty, and there's no, nothing wrong with that. But Jesus gave him what he needed, not necessarily what he wanted. 
And we so often as people twist our hearts looking for that which we want and Jesus hands us what we need. We want relief from temptation to sin with our eyes. And Jesus says, you give me your life. Give me all of your life. Don't hold anything back. Why are you holding that back? Don't resist the leaders who intend good for you. It's possible that in time, because you embrace the truth, you will pray for those who despitefully use you. You have people in your life, a spouse that doesn't treat you the way you want to be treated. Jesus says, change your heart first and pray for them. It's maybe not what you want to hear, but it's the truth you need. And so we have this pattern, this, this, this progression. We have this presentation of truth. People want something else, and then they get offended. And then the fruit of this offense is displayed sometimes, yes, by anger. But it also, it actually, it all the time manifests itself as ingratitude. Ingratitude. And so in verse 57, we see Jesus saying to to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. This is a way of saying, why aren't they thankful for the good gifts that God has given to them? I mean, it's not every day that you have a, 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 a hit coming from your hometown. I mean, you should be building monuments or something to this kid who grew up here. But instead, they're saying, they're downplaying them. As he's not worth listening to. In fact, they should be thankful to God, and then they're not. And instead, they're trying to drive him away. Now, gratitude is often in proportion to our familiarity with others. See, they were very familiar with Jesus, and so therefore it was very hard for them to express gratitude for what was right there in front of him. And they harden their hearts towards Jesus. And it's this ingratitude is just that one link in a chain which begins when truth is observed, alternatives are desired, and then offense is taken, and then ingratitude is displayed. And I would just want to correlate this with other teachings in the New Testament. Paul very clearly says this in Romans chapter 1. I just refer you to the scriptures in Romans 1 verse 19 to 21, in which Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are not without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him but they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts then become darkened see when people embrace lies they become irrational they lose touch with the truth and they become ungrateful the last the last step here is this intensification cycle it becomes almost like an intensification in which this it, this unbelief is confirmed but then it just gets harder like 
the more the wind blows on it, the, the cement gets harder. And verse 58, we see here, and he did not do many mighty works there. Why? Because of their unbelief. It's a sad commentary on Nazareth. Hometown boy should have been proud, should have been excited, should have been responding. But they couldn't. Augustine compares faith to opening one's mouth like a vessel. And I like this comparison. It's, it's, and he says that faith is like an open mouth on a vessel. But unbelief is like a stopper. It's like a stopper. Now, young parents might be able to work this analogy better if I say that faith is like the open mouth of a baby. It's great when a baby wants to take that food, right? It's another thing when they close their mouth and they go and they just kind of they don't want it. And you can do the little airplane trick, right? You can do the little 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 ducky thing. And it won't matter. You can you can you can try to put that in there. And what does that grace do? It goes all over the floor. And that's the way it is with truth. You don't open your mouth to receive it and you put up your little stopper. That grace, that truth, will go to another town. It will go away. Faith says, yum, give me more. And a lack of faith is a baby's closed mouth. It's not the fault of the parent. It's the fault of the child. Now, when the Lord perceives that his power is not accepted by us, he, he withdraws. And when we have the audacity to complain that we've been deprived of his aid, it was actually our belief that caused the rejection. And then we are the ones who drive him far away. How, do you, how long do you think God would keep at it? There is such a thing as aggravated guilt. That when the truth has been presented week after week or time and time, guilt can become aggravated. And the hardness of heart in the face of such clear truth is in the end worthy of even greater damnation. That's why I say, how much better would it be if we would but receive the sweetness of the word. Jesus said, blessed or flourishing are those who are not offended by me. And I believe as a positive exclamation point, this is what we ought to be hearing here this morning. And before I close, I, I want to make mention that in this scenario, it serves as a very good illustration. But I want you to know that God was very merciful to Jesus' family. Jesus came back again after the resurrection and made sure that his family saw him and believed. God was merciful to his family. And what this means is that we... we if you're thinking here, reflecting, it means that we ought not to give up on anyone. 
It also means that we don't take the hardness lightly. Hardness of heart is a way to keep away the blessings of God that he wants to pour out on us. And we don't give up on anyone. But what this also means is that there is a kind of obstinacy which is sinful. And a sinful obstinacy is a conscious decision to harden oneself to the truth. If you've been truly converted, if you are truly born again, God will not allow you to become so calcified to change that it becomes impossible. I think that there's a positive statement of hope here. That you don't have to fear that maybe I've committed the unpardonable sin. And, and as soon as you're aware that you, there's a sensitivity there already. There's an opportunity to change and to, to grow. But when that temptation or that truth rather is put before you, don't balk at it. Receive it. Receive the word of God. And you have to recognize that when God sends trials to you, it may be because it is ultimately for his, our good because he loves us. But I want to ask, and I want to conclude by asking this question. How much better it would be if we would simply humble ourselves and gladly receive the truth he offers us? Blessed are those who are not offended by Jesus. Let's pray.